Hello and welcome uh, to another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year, your favourite book-based podcast. We are, uh, although we are also the reason why you're spending so much money on books and filling up your bookshelves because there are so many great books we feature on this podcast. Unless you're going to the library. Yeah, no, that's true. Yes. Because, yeah. I mentioned that because I think Tracy and Haywood's Heath has been on. Mm-hmm. Headline, Where is the Summer? in caps. For context, I'm writing this email on a miserable day in July, which there have been several in a row where I live in Haywards Heath. I've been really looking forward to cracking out some beach reads, but this weather is making me want to read Shirley Jackson and Charlotte Bronte. I find myself in the mood for gothic fiction rather than page-turning thrillers or summer romances. I just wondered if anyone else's reading habits were affected by the weather. That's interesting. I never thought about that. Um, Yeah. uh, I suppose... No, I mean, you're going to read, you have a beach read, you're going to have a beach read, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. I've already uh, decided on what I'm going to take uh, take on my little holiday. And it's going to be something nice and straightforward, I think. I might take the Ben McIntyre book yes. about uh, your man, uh, Philby. Spy Among Friends. Spy Among Friends. Been watching the telly. And I thought, you know what? That sounds like a bit of fun. I've got a paperback of TikTok that you can take oh, with you. Oh, TikTok. Fabulous. It's, yes. It is exactly the same as the hardback, although it's, it has a softer cover. A softer cover. Which yes. would fit into your back pocket as you Definitely. go around <laughs> wherever it is you're going to the sites of Europe. The reason, the reason I thought, the reason that I was talking about libraries. Yes. I thought the first email was about libraries, but it's not. The second thing is oh, about Oh, right. Libraries. So, uh, well, uh, why don't I read that? So a tweet, that. a tweet from Simon Ellis. I enjoyed listening to your podcast with uh, Daniel Finkelstein recently. I love the sound of the book and so went to reserve it at my local library. There you go. But it turns out I am seventh on the waiting list and I think you must have a very high listenership in Buckingham. We are very, we're big in Buckingham. <laughs> big Definitely. in Bucks. Big yeah. books in Bucks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That should be a separate spin-off <laughs> podcast. Definitely. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I. Th- so that's the thing. So if we're costing you a lot of money, then the library is possibly your saviour, unless you live in Buckingham, in which case you stand no chance. No, at all. no chance at all. But we are, as as uh, regular listeners to the podcast will know, we are massive fans of libraries here. So, so uh, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email at any time. The address is books of the year at yahoo.com. We're on Twitter at books of the year. Instagram. Yes, of course, on the Insta. page. Yep. And we're on threads. We're now on threads. Production team, never no sleep. No sleep for them. Have you have you not uh, clicked on there? On the threads. Recently? Well, I'm on threads, uh, but I just don't I've I haven't done anything on it. Right. And so you don't follow anyone? No, well, you... I do. I follow you. Oh, right. And, I, and obviously I'm going to follow uh, at pick any page because that's where we are on threads. Um, but uh, I've uh, yes, I, I it's it's little baby steps mm. at the moment, isn't it? With mm. threads, not it's being... like a li- it's like a lifeboat in case Twitter gets even worse than it is. Oh, it's definitely getting so it, worse. So yeah. it could be a lifeboat. Yes, that's the, yes. that's why it's there. Definitely. Anyway, so yes, if you're on threads, we're at Pick Any Page. What with it being Insta mm-hmm. and everything else. Okay, we're going to talk to international best-selling author superstar Sebastian Fulks. Well, what a pleasure to have Sebastian Fawkes on the podcast. Sebastian, how are you? Um, very well, thank you, Simon. Very well indeed. 
<laughs> that's no, no, should we start again I mean no. I was slightly wasn't really expecting that no it's just a, <laughs> it's, fine. it's a polite opening I think yeah. um, uh, Matt and I have been devouring uh, your book Seventh Son so much to talk about so much we can't talk about but anyway Matt will you describe the cover which is already going to get us into problems I don't think yes. we've ever had a cover which is going to get us into trouble but anyway go on right so this book uh, is uh, the, the the shot that dominates the book is taken from inside a cave, and the cave is looking out onto um, onto a onto a seascape, and there's a there's an island on the horizon. However, your eye is drawn to a figure in the in the mouth of the cave, uh, and he has clearly been walking out of the cave. Now, uh, until a few moments ago, I hadn't realised there are actually two sets of footprints in the sand of the cave, one of them barefoot, another one wearing boots, but they converge on the figure. And and I'm going to be very careful here. There is also a silhouette of a uh, of, of, of a head, of a, of a skull, that is just, if you look very closely, eagle-eyed viewers will spot it. I didn't. Uh, Simon did. Uh, that's the that uh, is around the sort of the the, the mouth of the cave. Yes. But then it's but the rest of it is black and and the brown of the of the sand. And uh, Sebastian Fox in white, the seventh son, and and no doubt some very nice uh, testimonials on the front as well. So the fact that we're already tiptoeing, Sebastian. Yes. I mean, so. Did, did Matt do a good job on describing the cover? Uh, yes, um, it's a bit more lively than he made it sound. I think you know the black and the brown. I mean, it's it's a very striking cover. The publisher thinks it's the best cover they've ever produced. Um, it is the the shape of the skull is the shape of the mouth of the cave. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. let's be clear about that. And there's this figure in the middle who is a lonely, solitary figure, rather romantically alone, and supposed to make you think this is maybe the seventh son himself. But certainly this is someone who is solitary and possibly troubled. And the the trails of footprints leading to him are a bit of a hint about what's happening in the book. Um, but it's, it's quite a story-driven novel. Um, it's quite plotty and it has, it's also what they call high concept. And there's a big what if at the heart of it. And so it's a bit difficult to talk about it without spoiling it for the reader, which is the last thing we want to do. But at the same time, we've got to give some details, otherwise people yes. won't know what is, what's going on. I wonder, I wonder if people who've been reading your books over the, over the decades now uh, are quite well primed, actually, for where you're taking your, your readers on this. I was thinking, uh, I mean, partly Snow Country, but Human Traces, uh, which came out in... 2005 or six. 2005, okay. And you, you were talking then about consciousness and whether it was a gift or a curse and how you'd found the research exhilarating and you mentioned Fryan Hospital mm-hmm. Colney Hatch which actually comes up in uh, yeah. in this book um and you also said that you you had discovered that you were 3% neanderthal now that so now we took that's all about human traces i wonder is that like a primer for where we're heading here or not um well i suppose 
nothing that comes out of your own head as a writer ever surprises you. I mean, because it's all just going on inside there. But my publishers were absolutely astounded. You know, why have you set a book in the future? What's going on here? You've never done this sort of thing before. Whereas to me, it seems a perfectly logical extension of things which have been interesting me for a long time. And it was incredibly good fun to write about um, a world that's not the 20th century, which is what I've written about mostly, which I have to say to someone of my age is, is today, but I understand now that for most people, that's really quite a long time ago, and it was it was very exhilarating to to set the book in the what it effectively starts as the present day, and then moves on over twenty five years. Um, the Neanderthal thing, yeah, I mean, when I was researching human traces, which was in the twenty twenty five years ago now, um, it's about the early days of psychiatry and about the division between uh, doctors in the early days of the late nineteenth century about whether mental illness was essentially something that you inherited and was sort of hardwired into you, like a neurological illness, like Parkinson's or something, which would come upon you anyway, or whether it was a result of your life experiences, really, and that's a debate which is still going on. 150. I mean, psychiatry has been going for about 240 years, and that's a debate which is still going on. And uh, the the psychological people, the life experience school is actually rather winning now, which it wasn't when I wrote Human Traces. The medical model was winning then. But then, uh, you know, everything is changing very fast in science and anthropology and archaeology. And it was only about, I think in about uh, 2010, that we discovered that we had interbred with another human species, Neanderthals. And it was discovered that basically almost every human in the world, apart from some in Africa, southern Africa, um, had Neanderthal genes. And so I was pretty excited by this. So I spat in a tube and sent it off to Stockholm, as you do, for a very rough and ready test, which came back. And I think I was uh, supposed to be 3.5% Neanderthal. Um, And these are not terribly accurate tests. Um, But I think that's probably revised down now. I think it's pretty regular among almost all populations. It's sort of somewhere around between 2.25% and 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 2.3%, something Mm -hmm. like that. But this is a massive um, breakthrough. And... uh, very interesting. And there are also lots of other rather smudgy footprints and fingerprints over the Homo sapiens family tree. It's not just Neanderthals we interbred with. There are all sorts of people called the unknown introgressor, which is another long extinct human species that we mated with. And the great success of Homo sapiens has been mating um, what what scientists call gene flow events, but what you and I would call shagging, really. Okay, so... It, so, with that, with that as the background, uh, based on stuff that you've uh, been working on uh, in the past, launch us into mm. the seventh son, because obviously a lot of people go, "Well, who's the seventh son?" Then, but you might have to read on to discover that. But just take introduce us to the world that you've created here. Um, well, the world uh, we start in uh, is pretty entirely recognisable today: New York and London. And there's a young academic woman in New York who for various reasons decides that um, to do with her career, really furthering her career and getting some money, um, that being a surrogate mother would be a way to kill two birds with one stone. Um, And she's a nice, sympathetic, young, lively um, New Yorker called Talissa. Meanwhile, in London, we meet uh, a married couple who are a bit older than she is in their 30s, and they're not able to have a child because the mother, Mary, has had a uterine cancer. So they decide to have IVF, and they go to a clinic, 
and uh, they go through all the usual um, preparations and all the usual performances, which were quite fun to describe, but also, you know, you have to be tactful and, you know, this is a very serious and extremely distressing business for many people. And the outcomes are surprisingly poor, really, because, you know, you're putting together two gametes, a female and a male, and, you know, they really ought to work, especially when it's in such a controlled environment. And um, I went into a fertility clinic and I was actually able to use one of the machines that launches the little sperm down a tube and, and penetrates the, the skin of the egg and goes inside. I mean, there, it, there wasn't a live one in it when I was doing it. I wasn't playing. It would, would make you godfather. Yeah, well, <laughs> but... Um, so anyway, it's 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 a very interesting area, and there's a lot of research about why so few, uh, why the success rate is low, and that's also part of the story. But what happens in the seventh son is that there is a, a sleight of hand takes place in the clinic, uh, and the result is that the child who is born, um, who is called Seth, who is therefore the main character of the book. Uh, is not like other children, and um, he's not like anyone alive in the world. And this is for genetic reasons. And, I mean, all humans, I mean, we're all different because everything is a result of genetic shuffling and DNA, and some people are tall, some people are short, some people have this colour skin, that colour skin, etc., etc. But we are all basically... Um, Homo sapiens with a little bit of Neanderthal, um, but the the kid who's born, uh, Seth, is um, it's not that he's different in a way that people um, get slightly um, sensitive about now in in appearance. It's that he's different in a sort of deep down way. I I, was, I, I love this book, um, Sebastian. Uh, uh, both me and Simon uh, devoured it, and uh, people who are listening to this podcast are going to probably sense that we are deliberately holding back on certain aspects of the book because we want them to read it and enjoy it as much as we have. I have to say, when I, when I saw it was called Seventh Son, um, my mind was drawn on, and I, I'm going to be amazed if your, your, your mind alighted on the same thing. My mind alighted straight away on the Iron Maiden album, <laughs> Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. And actually, I went back to that album this week because uh, opening track is uh, Can I Play With Madness? And then The Clairvoyant, and then The Evil That Men Do. And I thought, uh -huh. actually, yes. actually, this album works better. But but um, Seventh Son is a it's a, it's a trope in in uh, another number of sort of mythologies yeah. and and stories in history. Just just uh, sort of fill that in for people because yeah. the, the the title is it, it, it's key for the book. Uh, yes, this is going to be a bit of a shaggy dog, actually. Um, I didn't have a title for it. I find titles very difficult. They either come straight away or they don't come. Like Charlotte Gray was always Charlotte Gray because that's who it's about. And it was just, a, <laughs> it just sort of summed, summed it up, really. Um, but I was under pressure to come up with a title. And my American publisher um, had read the book and he was enthusing in an ebullient New Yorker way. And I said, I can't think what to call it. He said, You should call it The Seventh Son. And I said, why? He said, but well, the phrase is in the book. So I thought, is it? So I went through the book with a sort of word search and I couldn't find it anywhere. But by this time, I'd rather latched on to the idea of it being called The Seventh Son because it has, as well as Iron Maiden connotations, <laughs> it has a certain sort of biblical resonance, mm -hmm. I think. Um, so then I 
um, I'd wanted to call the kid Seth. And if you look, uh, if you do a bit of re research into what Seth is, uh, who he was, uh, it takes you into various um, uh, apocryphal. I mean, you know, you can't get more apocryphal than Genesis itself. But there are literally things called the apocrypha, which are stories and myths from of Hebrew scriptures which were so far-fetched that they're not actually included in the Bible. And the idea was that after Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's uh, kids, had, um, Adam many, many years later, they were very, very fertile, these old guys, <laughs> had another son. He was called Seth. Um, but then I invented that he'd had others in with other women before. There was a woman before Eve in many Hebrew religions called Lilith. Very interesting character too. So that's really I, I don't we don't want to get lost in the myths um, of the Bible. Um, it it has a resonance I think, and um, I, I I like the title and I think it'll work. But the idea that the seventh son has special powers is that something that's that uh, you'll find yeah. in in certain mythologies. Yeah, and Seth uh, does have um, special powers, but not at all in the sort of. Um, Batman, Spider-Man sense at all. Um, I think his special powers are really that he appears to be uh, incredibly like you and me and everyone listening to this, but without some of the bad bits. Um, and he is he has a more consistent relationship with reality than we do. Um, he's not the sort of guy who's going to be having delusions or hallucinations or, and also he's not violent. He's going to be, uh, a kind and loving kind of person. Uh, and he thinks in a very slightly different way. And when I was doing his dialogue, I had in mind the way that people who were on various spectrums speak to one another. Um, in a very literal way. Mm. So people say, you know, so you got here all right? And he says, yes, of course, I came in a car. And he he doesn't really understand that behind there, you got here all right? He's so yeah, yeah, it's great to see you. He doesn't say that. I mean, Greta Thunberg, I think, is rather interesting if you hear her talk. She's a very sort of literal. And he doesn't have, um, he doesn't really do metaphor, which is a big human thing. Um, and he, his, well, I don't want to, there's too much plot spoiling. <laughs> you're, desperate, you're desperate to say everything. So, okay, but it's interesting that the mm. whole writing Seth as a character, writing him as a point of view uh, character must have been, given what you've just said about the kind of person that he is, it must have been enormous fun, mm. I think, to, to yeah. play with, well, say play with madness but where you're playing with Seth you're playing with someone who is different to everyone else yeah. in the world that must have been pretty yes exciting. I mean there, there has literally been never been a character in fiction like Seth I mean literally never and so that was a big challenge but I'm, I'm glad you say fun because it, although the book is very serious about the nature of what a human being is and how on earth do we get to be what we are and why are we so utterly weird um, at the same time I did find little jokes and comic situations arising almost every other page. And I didn't try to exploit them or milk the laughs, but, you know, where the comedy was there, I very much left it in. Uh, and, you know, life is like that. I mean, it is in the midst of the extraordinary um, cruelty and horror and the world on fire in which we live. Um, you know, we just do laugh a lot, don't we? And I if it crops up naturally in your narrative, you know, leave it in. Uh, well, I'll tell you what made me laugh out loud, and that is the... So we've ha we have a um, a super-rich guy as at the centre of this, mm. and the time when we visit his house, um, and 
I, I, but th- th- this was a sequence that I mentioned to Simon when we were reading it. This uh, is a guy called Lucas Parn. Correct. He correct. runs the Parn Institute. He does. So, so Lucas uh, takes us to his house where he has a Stonehenge where at the, at the minute and hour of his birth, <laughs> the sun will, will set off a laser that will, that will put his Sagittarian star sign onto the Stonehenge. And I, was, I, I, I loved that. I thought that was hilarious. But it, it also, played into something for me. This guy thinks he's sort of this uh, genius. And it seems to be this fallacy that's at the centre of quite a lot of the super rich. And, you know, Elon Musk made some decent bets on on PayPal, but has completely blown the bank when it comes when it comes to Twitter and is losing billions hand over fist. This fallacy that because they are super rich, they genuinely believe I'm really smart. I'm actually really smart, much smarter than you guys, because look at the money I've got when actually you made a couple of decent bets earlier on in your career. Well done. But that doesn't make you super mm. smart. Uh, yes. I mean, you're talking of Stonehenge, we're getting it as well as Iron Maiden, a bit of spinal tap. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. Right. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, the the, the Lucas Pan, who's this wealthy, he sees himself as a, a philanthropic disruptor and someone who doesn't play by the rules. And We all think he's a tosser. Yeah. You, you're perfectly allowed to think he's a tosser. <laughs> and I don't sort of make you think that. I don't spell it out, but I'm very, very happy that that's what you think. Um, but at the same time, you're trying to get away from the received idea. So he doesn't talk a lot of techno babble. On the contrary, he's, he talks a bit like an Australian sheep shearer, which is, you know, he's part Australian in his background. But that's a game which he's using to cover up and actually he's really much more of a sort of euro trash in his sort of culturally and not that he has a great deal of culture but uh, the, the way that he behaves and the way that he considers himself to be above everything i mean i haven't met um tech billionaires and and disruptors and whatever they want to call themselves but i have met quite a lot of hedge funders and they have the same thing if you go to a restaurant they they don't look at the menu they just tell the waiter what they want to eat and if the waiter says we don't have that, they say, well, go and get it and cook it. And here's 200 pounds cash. And there's the so that is that was very that sort of behavior was very familiar in London until the whole financial world collapsed, though it's still it's still there. This kind of arrogance about being above and beyond the normal, the normal considerations. But it becomes more serious uh, when there is a moral consideration. And the book examines this quite a lot about how much how much you can interfere with life. Um, and this is sort of connected to all sorts of human rights issues about abortion and the sanctity of human life and so on and so forth. And Lucas Pan, the, the, the tech billionaire in the book, takes the view that um, the future of humanity and his own glorious ambition are far more important um, than what's in a little test tube in a fertility lab. I like the uh, one of the things that I sort of just sat back and admired, Sebastian, was the how you explain complexity. And there is a there is a scene where all the uh, the Pan Institute top brass are sitting around and they're having and they're having a meeting. And in the course of this conversation, we're talking about DNA evolution, uh, something called the Rossi Durante loop and the, and Glockner's isthmus, uh, <laughs> all very important in the context of the story. But it's peppered with someone saying, "Hang on, you're going too fast. Can you exp- uh, can you can you explain that again?" But by the end of that chapter, I thought, "Okay, I'm I'm with you. You've you know you've explained something which is by definition incredibly complex. But I think I've got a handle on it." Uh, well, I'm very pleased you say that. I mean, 
I like books which have ideas in them, and this obviously has big ideas in it. But then you don't want to bore the pants off the reader, and you don't want to slow it down with very stodgy. You don't want people to feel they're in the back of the sort of O level GCSE class at school. Um, and so you have to dramatize it when you're giving people the information by having people saying, God, this is boring, or slow down, or you've <laughs> lost me, or arguing about what's being said. And uh, how much do you do I need to explain about the genetics and the biology um, that underlie what happens in the book? And the answer is, I need to show the 1% of readers who are familiar with this that, yes, I've understood it. And for the 99% of readers who are not expert in this field, I need to give them a, a sort of explanation which is really clear and at a high level, not at a sort of low molecular level, if you like, but something that a, a reasonably intelligent person given... 10 minutes to focus and concentrate could be led through. And, you know, and I'm not a scientist at all by um, background, so I had to explain it to myself quite a bit. And, and of the things that you um, you mentioned there, you know, genetics and evolution, uh, well, everyone knows how that works, and there are lots of books about it. The Glockness Isthmus and the Rossi Durante Loop are things which I invented. Oh, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> really? Yeah. I, I just assumed that I Goodness. just hadn't been reading widely enough. No, um, they, I, they, they're, they're borrowed from a previous book I wrote called A Possible Life, which has a, has a bit set in, in the future when the two Italian neuroscientists discover these things. Damn, um, I should have known that. You should have Bad homework. You know? Yes. I haven't read every single. Uh, every, every, the, the one thing I did think this is just an observation which again might be not quite right but I think I detected your voice particularly when we hear from Mrs Gopal mm. uh, and, Ms., and Mrs Gopal is a friend of Talissa who we meet very early on and she, she stays at her place and some of her complaints about the way the world is <laughs> I think I think this is Mr Falks telling uh... me Yes, Mrs. Capel, she uh, pe people really uh, like her. I we like do. her yes. too. Um, she's of, uh, I suppose she's sort of middle-aged and she's a partly Indian, mostly Indian background, but she's a sort of citizen of, of Britain and the world, really, as, as most of the people in the book are, actually, where it's set a little bit into the future where people are... Um, they slightly got over all the identity problems which are sort of irritating and upsetting people at the moment into a slightly sort of calmer water, um, which is where I want them to be so they can focus on the big issue, which is really, you know, what genetically is a, is a human. Um, but yes, as we go along, Mrs. Gopal is certainly, um, she has been very upset by what she sees as a sequence of terrible bad luck in, in London, where she lives, starting with the financial crisis when all these crooks bankrupted the world and had their bad bets paid back to them out of the proceeds of the taxpayer, and then going through something she calls Brexit, which she doesn't really <laughs> understand. And, but it's, and then a, a politician, as she refers to as the man with the silly hair, which, again, we don't name the name. No, so, of course I mean, not. But I, I can't imagine. Who could it be? Who she's thinking of, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it has been a terrible run of luck. But then in, in the imagined world of the seventh son, in 10 years, 15 years on from now, uh, things have got a bit better, actually. Given, as you said, this is your, your first book set entirely uh, in the future, and it is, as you say, it begins in the very, very near future, mm. but then we, we, we do go ahead um, 20, 20, 30 years. 
How much fun did you have with deciding what is going to be in this world in the future? Because there's um, there are things like um, people having implants mm. to be able to pay for things. Mm. So we're now all in a world where we barely anyone is carrying cash around uh, because they just use their contactless. So that that felt like a leap that was that's that, we're that, pretty much there, aren't we? You were yeah. pretty much there already. But also cars disappearing. I, mm. All the things that, that you you must have had enormous fun with deciding right what will be in this world in the future yes i i did i mean my my projection uh is that it, things will change hardly at all and that you when you look back at um 30 years ago and i see the world is almost identical the only real difference is i you know there are three mobile phones on the table and that has that is a substantial difference we all carry around a small computer but for the rest people are worried about the weather uh, they're worried about manchester united tottenham you know what's going on they're worried about their bad ankle their kids exam results at school having a hangover and so on and i i think all that will stay the same but uh, at the same time, uh, I was urged really by my publisher to have a bit more fun with this. Uh, so having made it quite clear that not much has changed, I then did change a few things. And obviously, I mean, as the world is literally on fire at the moment, things will have to change uh, as far as energy is concerned and carbon and what have you. So we've um, opened up a few underground rivers in London and there's a lot of waterborne transport and cars hardly at all, a lot of bicycles. So Talissa reflects that London looks a bit like pictures of old Beijing she saw in the school book going back sort of to the early years of the 20th century when everyone was on a bicycle because there weren't really cars in China. So that's sort of come a, a circle. And then um, I had a bit of fun with AI, but not very much because we don't really know how that's going to go. But clearly a lot of teaching, I think, will be done by AI, which is a problem for two of the characters in the book, Talissa herself, who's in academics, so works at a university, and she her freshman class is now taught entirely by AI, which is fine by her because it gives her time to do more research of her own. But um, the father, um, the biological father of Seth, uh, is a secondary school teacher in London and you know, that's not going to be such good news for him, I think. And then there's a bit of transport as well. And um, I was reluctant to go into this. I don't want people to think they're going to encounter little green men and spacecraft no. and all that sort of. And I also remember when I was at school as a kid, we were always being asked to picture cities of the future and they always had these monorails. And, but no one has a monorail. <laughs> <laughs> and you're always gonna, your food was going to be a pill, wasn't it? Yeah. But it isn't. And so I think most projections are wrong. But I did have fun with putting Talissa into a very, very high-speed sort of rocket delivery system <laughs> to get her um, from Boston. Boston to New York. And 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 also projecting the media and projecting mm. the law, mm. uh, both of which play very important roles later on in the book. You've, in, you've invented some interesting acts of parliament. Yeah. Um, there, there is a court case which is to do with the uh, with Seth's conception later on. Um, and uh, my brother's a lawyer and I consulted him, but he's, he doesn't really do this area. Lawyers are a bit like historians. You ask them questions and say, no, I'm not really my period, old boy. <laughs> you know, no, so, um, but the great thing is that the court case is 30 years into the future. So you can fiddle around with privacy laws and uh, fraud laws and whether they're tried as civil or criminal. Um, you know, th these things will change for sure. So I just changed them in a way that what suited me. Um, and the media, well, of course, ugh, it's very hard to see which way that will go. I mean, I, I hope and believe that 
people will at some point um, pay for expertise and they will pay to have the world's cacophony filtered for them, which is really what magazines and newspapers are or, you know, good broadcasting outlets. But at the moment, we're heading further and further into a sort of complete babel of noise so that when it, late in the book, it, it becomes a question of controlling the news of what is of who Seth is and what he is. Um, there are quite your chance of getting the truth out there pretty small. Can I just just sort of almost in passing, but you mentioned AI uh, and this book isn't about AI, but. We have had so much conversations. So there have been so many conversations. By the way, I should say that's a Diet Coke that's been consumed <laughs> by Sebastian and not a, a, an expensive bourbon. Um, that human consciousness and what it is to be a human has been part of the AI conversation. And this book, your book, lands right in the middle of that. Even though it's not an AI book, it is about, well, what is it that makes us who we are? So it's almost as though the whole of this year where AI has been a dominant subject, here comes a book which isn't about AI, but actually actually is part of that big discussion. Yes. I mean, I, I've thought about human consciousness and written about it quite a lot. And um, I think one of the things that The Seventh Son suggests, uh, and this is perhaps slightly controversial, um, is that there may be different variations of human consciousness, or certainly there were as we went along. And one of the things that makes sapiens sapiens, that makes us all one family on this world, is the presumption that we all share a same state of thinking and self-reflective thinking, or consciousness in other words, really. But um, if you if you look at how um, human beings developed in successive emigrations out of Africa into Eurasia and then back again, and the new species who formed in Eurasia and then died, uh, it is quite possible that in all this flux and reflux, um, there were different types and different stages of consciousness. I mean, I think it, it remains the defining human faculty, but I think it is possible to think that some hundreds of thousands of years ago, there were slightly different flavors of it. Uh, and one of the great uh, questions and that is really more a philosophical than a scientific question, um, which is also touched on in the book, is the fact that in strictly Darwinian terms, this massive intellectual advantage that we have over other species is not really it doesn't really fit in with how natural selection should work. In order to find a niche that is habitable in nature, we needed to be better at hunting and breeding and fishing and eating um, and keeping ourselves warm than our competitors. But we didn't need to build a Westminster Cathedral. So there were various huge leaps and saltations and massive advances. I mean, this is established and agreed, really, among evolutionary scientists. Um, but at the same time, you do wonder whether these massively unnecessary, though in many ways glorious um, achievements and these facilities that we have, whether they have a downside, which is our fragility and our propensity to violence and our propensity to madness uh, and to psychosis and to all sorts of dementia, both in young and old people, which... Uh, other species don't have or don't really have anything like the same extent. Of course, your 
old dog or cow may get a bit cranky when it's old, especially if it's been mistreated when it's young. But you don't have, so far as we're aware, a cow in a field who hears the voice of 12 other cows who are not in the field. And this is a very specific human issue. And it may be that this is connected. We don't know yet. Maybe we will one day with the quite unnecessary and inexplicable leaps that have given us the brains that we have. Uh, a lot of this is discovered in, uh, and discussed in, uh, in The Seventh Sun. But, uh, while we've got you, can I, I want to ask you a question that's got nothing to do with, with, mm. with the book at all. But as someone who has written extensively and with great success about the First World War, I was thinking about this whilst watching All Quiet on the Western Front, the most recent, the most recent version, um, and before that, 1917, and how many stories are still coming out of the First World War and also the Second World mm. War. And this is a COVID question. Because I, it seems to me that COVID will continue to generate stories or affect storytelling for a long time to come because uh, it affected literally everybody. Everybody listening to this podcast has a story about what lockdown was like and the impact that it's had on us as people. And I just, as as one of our great storytellers, I'd just be intrigued to know what you think about whether the, whether we will feel the impact of lockdown and COVID for. A substantial amount of time. Um, I think it. <clears throat> I think we will. And uh, personally, I had. Um, I was quite unwell, and I had blood clots in the lungs, which may or may not have been caused by having had it. So you know, everyone has their story of how ill they were or how they escaped. But I think that uh, socially, um, it, it really asked a lot of questions about who you need to see, why you need to see them. Do you really care about these people? Do you see your friends just you just going through a performance or do you really like them? Uh, it threw people back very much on their own resources. Uh, there were some good things. People read more books. <laughs> um, but I think we will discover how it came about, probably. And I think we know where the money is um, on how it came about, really. Um, at the moment, I, I haven't read anything interesting about it um, in fictional form because... I, I think it's a really tough thing to write an interesting novel about um, people not doing anything um, and sitting around staring at the walls of their flat um, for months and months on end, trying not to go crazy and watching Joe Exotic for the third <laughs> time. I mean, I mean, anyone who can get a, a thrilling and dramatic novel out of that is I just, you know, genius. Steven Spielberg has done a very personal film mm. as a result of lockdown yes. meet the fable. I see what you mean so it wasn't about covid it was no, not about covid just uh, yes yeah. exactly yeah. It just changed perceptions yeah no i mean i had actually in in birdsong which you mentioned um the main character isabel main female character dies of spanish flu uh, which is a bigger epidemic which took place between about 1917 and 21 uh, and indeed in my last book her sister dies of it so I, i'd been i'd thought about um, pandemics and what they do before. And during during lockdown myself, I, I wrote a lot of essays, of, of, I suppose vaguely autobiographical. They were just essays about things which interest me. And so it freed up time for me to do that. Whether anyone will want to read them or publish them, I don't know. But um, yeah, I think it's, you know, 
too, as they said about the French Revolution, too soon to say. Too soon to say. Uh, Sebastian Folks, thank you. His uh, new novel is The Seventh Son, and I knew I was completely hooked when, which is very rare, I've, I haven't listened to any podcast for a, a week because all my travelling time has been consumed by reading this book, which I think will definitely be one of the books of the year. Uh, there'll be more with Sebastian in our second podcast when we do the Q&A. Uh, for the moment, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. It's a pleasure. 